The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. It is good to be back with you. I know uh, I've been out the past two weeks. I did not anticipate being out last Sunday, but uh, it was the will of Southwest Airlines that I be in Oklahoma City and not in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so, but it is, it is good to be back with y'all. This morning, we are going to resume our study through the book of Ephesians, our study through the book of Ephesians. And, and anytime a mic goes from one person to the next, uh, it, it, it uh, got to refit it. So bear with me with some mic difficulties this Sunday. Uh, but but if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. Now, as you're turning there, I want to catch you up a little bit uh, with where we are at in our study. And so I know it's been a little bit since we've been in Ephesians with Easter and with Brother Bob Green preaching uh, as well. Man, my goodness. Um, and so let me let me catch you up a little bit. Uh, so we began our study in the book of Ephesians with that big run on sentence. If you'll remember all the way back to January, where Paul just unceasingly tells us of the great benefits that we have in the gospel, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then Paul goes on to say that that the end purpose for everything, for why everything was created, is that one day in the new heaven and in the new earth, all things are going to be united in Christ Jesus. And so until that day, Paul, uh, God has given us his spirit to both affirm these truths within us and to seal us, to keep us for that day when Jesus will return. And then Paul, he kind of takes a pause in his teaching and he transitions into a prayer in Ephesians chapter one, verse 15, where, where he prays that God would open the eyes of the Ephesians hearts in ours today as well, that, that they that they would lay hold of the weighty truths that he just shared with them. Well, that, that's chapter one. You're caught up so far, right? Now we come on to chapter two. Chapter two is where Paul begins to personalize the truth of the gospel to every one of our lives, specifically that we were dead in our sins, that we were sons of disobedience, that we were children of wrath, that we were without hope and without God in this world. But if you'll remember, church, what are the two greatest words in all the Bible? But God. Right. You'll see in verse four, chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And so we've seen that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that it can't be earned. It can only be received from God to us. And so after that, then Paul, he kind of takes the next section to zoom out from the personal implications of the gospel. And he goes to the corporate implications of the gospel. Okay, what does the gospel mean for the people of God as a whole in general? Or or maybe to put it another way, Paul answers the question of who the people of God are now and how they relate to one another. And so Paul answers this by saying that through the gospel, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, has made for himself one new man, a new creation. And so God's people now, they're not defined by one specific ethnic group. No, no, now God's people are comprised of a multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. A people, Paul would say at the end of Ephesians 2, people who are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, fellow members of God's household 
and fellow stones in God's temple. And, and so where Paul says, where does God's spirit dwell within now? He, he dwells within God's people. And so what is God's temple now? The temple is God's people. And so then from there, Paul transitions to chapter three, where he goes into greater detail of this mystery of how through the gospel, the hostility that once existed between Jew and Gentile, it has now been abolished. And so now Jew and Gentile alike, for everyone trusting in Jesus alone for that, their salvation, we are all now stewards and ministers of this grace that we have been given. And Paul says we have been given unfettered access with boldness and confidence into the most holy place. So, so that's Ephesians 1, 1 through Ephesians three thirteen. All right, we're all caught up to speed now, right? And so that brings us to our passage this morning. In, in our passage this morning, it's the second of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. And so I'm, I'm about to read it. But church, remember, after I read this, I'm going to say th- uh, this is the word of the Lord. And your response will be thanks be to God. OK, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me read it for us real quick. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that you would come now. You would come by your spirit, that you would open our eyes, behold wondrous things out of your word, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And that through this time, Holy Spirit, that you would impress within our hearts a greater desire, a greater zeal and a greater commitment to give ourselves over to the great work of prayer. Pray now that you would do the greater work that I could ever do. Pray that you would change hearts through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, to, to introduce our text in a small Texas town, in, in Mount Vernon, you may have heard this story before. It's it's kind of a popular one, uh, but but there was a, a bar named Drummond's Bar, and it, it began construction on a new building to increase their business. Business was going well at this bar, and so they wanted to add a wing to the bar. However, during this time, the local Baptist church started a campaign to block the bar from opening by praying to God, asking God to prevent this bar from expanding their operations. Well, work progressed on construction right up until the week before it was to open. And then during that week, right before it was to open, lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. I think this is a true story, not just a preacher story. Um, the, the, the church folks, they were rather smug after this happened uh, in their outlook after that. You know, they were pretty you know, high and mighty, pretty proud uh, that God had, had smitten this bar with lightning. Until, that is, the bar owner sued the church on grounds that the church was ultimately responsible for the destruction of his building, either through direct or indirect actions or means. 
It, well, well, after this happened, after the bar owner sued the church, the church vehemently denied all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise in its reply to the court. And, and so all of this comes to the judge and, and, and the judge looks through the case. And, and, and after at the hearing, he said this. He said, I don't know how I'm going to decide this, but as it appears from the paperwork, we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that does not. And so that that story, while funny, it, it drives home an important question for all of us. Do we really believe in the power of prayer? When we pray in faith, According to God's will, do we really believe that God will work and he will answer? I'm convinced, I know it's been true, at least in my life at times, that though we believe in the power of prayer, we know God works when we pray. There there can be at times a disconnect between knowing this truth intellectually and really believing it with all of our inner being. And so I believe that one of the greatest inhibitors to our prayer life in addition to indwelling sin that remains within us. But one of the other greater uh, inhibitors to our prayer life is that we don't fully grasp the power that has been granted to us through the means of prayer. Oswald Chambers, you might know that name. He, he wrote a famous devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. He wrote in that devotional that prayer does, doesn't fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Well, our passage this morning, like I said, it is the second of Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians. The first one being in Ephesians chapter one. In this prayer, Ephesians chapter three, verse uh, chapter three, verses fourteen through nineteen, it's my estim- in my estimation, the greatest prayer in all of Paul's epistles. And so, this morning, I don't have three points for you. Uh, instead, we're just going to walk through this passage phrase by phrase, because it truly is my heart's desire that you grasp the truth of this passage in such a way that it will further fuel and inflame your own prayer life, specifically for these next two weeks. More of that to come. And you may have picked up while we were reading the passage, if you're reading uh, actively, you know, uh, Mortimer Adler in his book, How to Read a Book, he talks about uh, being an active reader. And so if you are actively reading our passage, you, you may have seen uh, that, 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 that Paul uh, uses this passage, he builds his argument kind of like a staircase. One request builds upon the next request until the prayer requests ultimately reach the final ultimate request in verse 19. And, and we'll take a look at that in a bit. And, and so because of that, though, because they're building one on another, we're going to conduct our study a bit unusually this morning in that we're going to study this passage in reverse. We're, we're going to look at first the ultimate prayer request that Paul prays for the Ephesians. And then we're going to see, okay, how do we get to that ultimate prayer request? What are the steps that Paul lays out for us to be filled with all the fullness of God? And so what is that ultimate prayer request? Well, I just said it. What is Paul's chief desire for the people that he had labored among, that he had given his life to? If there was one prayer for Paul to pray for the Ephesians, what was it? Let's read verse 19. That they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that so that to the end that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It was that they would be filled with all of God's fullness. 
And so I just want to pause and ask real quick, is that what your prayer life is wrapped up in? Do you want more of God or do you just want more from God? Listen, it's not bad to ask for things from God, right? We need, we should. Jesus directs us to, to pray and to ask for our daily bread. To, to, and Paul says in Philippians 4, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's good for us to pray for material things in life. But what is our highest prayer? What is our greatest prayer? What is our chief prayer in life? That we get more from God or that we get more of God himself. May that be true of us, that our highest prayer is, Father, fill me with more of you. And above anything else in life, I just want and need and must have more of you. It's this idea of the psalmist in Psalm 73 when he says, Whom have I in heaven on earth but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. His heart's desire was anything. I don't want anything else, Lord, but you. And so listen, church, until that is our highest prayer in life, revival, it won't take place in this church because revival happens in a church. A revival isn't an event you go to. Revival is a work of the spirit within us. Revival happens in a church when revival happens within the church members, when it happens within you and me. And so I just want to pause and ask you again, what do you want most in life? If you could have anything, anything, what would it be? More money, maybe more better health, maybe more peaceful relationships, a successful life and a career. Again, for David and for Paul, the desire of their heart. And I pray the desire of your heart as well. The desire of our heart is that they would have more of God. And and so just to press it one more time, if God promised to answer one prayer request, of yours. What would you use that prayer request on? Would it be, Father, fill me with all of your fullness? Everything else in the Christian life flows from that. When we are filled with the fullness of God, everything else flows from that one truth. And so if that is your heart's desire, and I pray that it is, I pray the Holy Spirit is at work right now to, to, to make that your heart's desire, then your next question should be, well, I want to be filled with all of God's fullness, but how do I be filled with God's fullness? And we see, again, we're going backwards. We see Paul answer that in verses 18 through 19, that the way we come to know the fullness of God is by experiencing the fullness of Christ's love for us. All the fullness of God that we could ever know in this lifetime is wrapped up in the love of Jesus for us, Paul says. And so here very soon, in the next two weeks, Lord willing, uh, we're about to get into the next three chapters of the commands section of Ephesians. Right? And so I know we've, we've, talked, we've, we've looked at a lot of doctrine. Now we're talking about the love of Jesus. Maybe some of you are asking, when are we going to get into the obedience part of the, of the Christian life? Well, it is true. Obedience is not optional in the Christian life. We are called to obey Christ as our Lord. But what Paul is saying, in essence, by by putting this prayer before the obedience section, what Paul is saying, in essence, is this, that before you are filled up with commands, you must first be filled up with the love of Jesus. Because what pleases the Lord isn't a dutiful obedience 
but rather an obedience that flows from a heart of love. Right. And so for those of you who are parents or grandparents or, or an aunt or uncle, which is better that our children rigorously obey us or that our children truly and deeply love us? We know intuitively that it's better to have our children's true love because from true love will come true obedience, obedience from the heart. And so it is in the Christian life. Before we are ever to obey God in truth, we must first be filled with the love of Jesus. Because when we are filled with his love, we in turn will love him. 30 years after Paul wrote this letter, another letter would be written to the Ephesian church. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says this to the Ephesian church. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. In other words, I know you're seeking to stick it out and to not be influenced by the ways of the world. You're speaking out against all the sinful cultural issues of your day and you're holding to correct doctrine. You're enduring suffering for my name's sake and you are remaining faithful, Jesus is telling the Ephesian church. But if you remember Revelation chapter 2, you'll know what, what does Jesus say? He says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. In essence, Jesus is saying, you're doing all of these things. And externally, you look like the model Christians on the face of the planet. But the only problem is you lack love. You lack love, true love for me, is what Jesus tells the Ephesian church. And so listen, if, if it only took 30 years for the Ephesian church to get from what Paul was praying, that they would experience the, the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, if it only took 30 years to get from that to now being devoid of his love, then listen, that is a cautionary tell for us today as well, church. And, and so I just want to pause and ask, Maybe could that be true for some of you? And I say this lovingly to you. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years and you've been fulfilling all of your Christian duties. Hourly people would point to you and say, wow, I want to be like them. And, And that's true. But inwardly, in your heart, maybe you're lacking love, true affectional love for Jesus. If you're honest, your love has grown cold. Your love for Jesus, it, it isn't vibrant anymore. It isn't what it once used to be. On the contrary, maybe your heart has grown hardened and your love for Christ sterile. And so if that's you, I don't want to, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to encourage you to do what Jesus said in Revelation 2 and to bring us back to our prayer here. And that is to repent of your lack of love and to return to him. And so listen, one of the ways you can return to him is by praying through this prayer that Paul outlines for us. Because love for Christ, it doesn't come automatic for the Christian. The only way we can love Christ is by first experiencing his love for us. It's breadth and length and height and depth. Because listen, church, we can, we, can grow, we can grow in our love for Jesus. We can grow in our experience of Jesus' love for us because it is an inexhaustible well that we can draw from day after day. 
And so before we move on, notice that language. What Notice what Paul says in verse 19. He says to know the love of Christ. But he seems to put a contradiction there, right? He says you need to know the love of Christ. But this knowledge of the love of Christ, it needs to surpass knowledge. <laughs> and so you, if, if you're thinking, right, you're like, okay, how, how can we know something that is beyond knowing? And, and, and so Paul would answer it this way. That, that Paul is referring, what Paul is referring to, it begins with our intellectual study of Christ's love. It begins with our study of God's word to comprehend of his love for us as revealed in the Bible. But our intellectual comprehension then leads us to an experience of this truth such that now through experience, we know the love of Jesus in a way that we could not have known otherwise through study alone. And so, yes, Christianity, it is a faith that is rooted in biblical doctrines that we must give ourselves to know and to cherish and to study. However, Christianity, it, it is more than just an intellectual adherence to doctrines. The heart of Christianity is an experiential relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. And so how can we know of Christ's love for us? Well, we, we go to our Bibles first and foremost, and we look to the cross. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we devote ourselves to study the depths of the gospel because it's in the gospel that we study and we see the love of Jesus. But as we're studying, we're also praying, Father, give me strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Jesus that surpasses what I can just know from mere study alone. The love of Jesus, it is a love that was demonstrated 2,000 years ago on the cross and it is a love that is to be experienced day by day in the christian life and so may god open our hearts and cause them to come alive with a fresh experience of christ's love as we devote ourselves to studying his love revealed in his word all right but note what paul says in verse 17 look with me verse 17 that the only way, the only way we can experience this love and the only way our lives can be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus is what? If Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And so I hope you're seeing Paul's argument in reverse here, right? Fullness of God. And so how do we get to fullness of God? Experience the love of Jesus. How do we experience the love of Jesus? Christ now dwelling in our hearts through faith. And, and that word dwell, it literally means to reside. And, and so I want to ask you again a question, maybe a, a pointed question. And that's this. Is Jesus, is he a resident of your heart? Or is he just a visitor who comes and goes? Have you, in a sense, just established visiting hours on Sunday for him? Or maybe visiting hours during your quiet time throughout the week. And then afterward, you thank him for coming. Thank you so much for coming. You escort him out the the door of your heart. And then you just go about the normal functions of your day. Or, as Paul prays, is Jesus, is he actively and consistently dwelling within you? Has he taken permanent residence within your heart? Such that through your days, you're abiding in him and you're abiding in him because he is abiding within you. You you, you surrendered your will to him 
and you're following his will for your life. Is he a visitor only or is he dwelling within your heart? And so again, listen, my goal, it isn't to make you feel bad or guilty in asking these questions. My my goal in all of this is to show you the necessity of this prayer for your life and for my life as well. So that we will pray this prayer for ourselves and for one another. And that this prayer would become a reality in our lives. And so for Christ then to dwell in our hearts through faith, we must pray then verse 16. And that's that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Notice that that phrase inner being. Maybe it's a bit confusing if you were here last Wednesday. We touched on it a bit. Uh, But this phrase inner being, it refers to your true self, your inner being. It's the intersection of your heart, soul and mind. And so while we are not less than molecular structures, a makeup of molecular structures, we are more than just physical creatures. And so that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, though your outer self is wasting away, right? Uh, you, though, you're, though you're getting older, though things aren't working as they should, though, though your strength is failing you physically, what did he say? Your inner self is what? Being renewed day by day. And, and that inner self, that, that, that inner self being renewed, it's the same phrase as this inner being. And so Paul prays that this inner person, who you are, who you truly are, would be strengthened with all power by the Holy Spirit. And so you might be thinking, you, you, maybe you're asking, uh, okay, strengthened for what purpose? Why, why? For what purpose? Well, obviously, Paul says that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. But why do you need to be strengthened? If you have been made new and if the Holy Spirit lives within you, why do you need extra strength if you've already been given the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul prays for continually increasing daily strength for the Ephesians because he knows at least two things. Number one, that within the inner man, there is a spiritual battle waging within us. And and therefore, number two, in order to fight this spiritual battle, we must be given spiritual strength. And this strength, spiritual strength, doesn't come automatically to us. During during World War II, much of the country was forced to live on rations and people were encouraged to buy war bonds. And even entire industries, which I think is is it's. Amazing how, how they were able to retool all the machines so quickly. But entire industries shifted to produce warplanes and other necessary pieces of equipment for the war effort. So that, and so for that, people were forced to, to leave their old jobs, right, and to relearn new skills and new tasks and how to operate new tools. And so war bonds, rationing, learning new skills, all of this involved sacrifice on the part of the American people who stayed behind during World War II. But, but there was a phrase popularized during the war effort meant to galvanize support back home. And the phrase was this. And if you were here last Wednesday, you heard me say it. But it was this, don't you know there's a war going on? Right, And so this phrase, don't you know there was a war going on, it reminded people the purpose for why they were sacrificing. And it reminded them the reality of the situation, that there is a real life and death war waging on on the continent of Europe. And so we need to do whatever it takes to support that effort. And so I want to ask you this morning, don't you know there's a war going on within you? 
The, the battle of whether you will gratify the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, or whether you will wage war against these sinful desires, subdue them and submit them to the Lord Jesus. There, there, there is a war waging within you. And so for that war, to fight in that battle, you need to be strengthened, Paul says, with power by the Holy Spirit for this war you are in. And so listen, why do we need to be strengthened? Let's get to the practical point. It's this. Sin and Christ cannot cohabitate your heart. Sin and Christ cannot cohabitate your heart. So why do we need to be strengthened? So we fight sin. Why do we fight sin? So that Christ dwells in our heart through faith. Now, now I'm not saying, right, that, that you have to be perfectly rid of sin for Jesus to reside in your heart. Now, I'm not advocating for a Christian perfectionism. The Apostle John, he would say this, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, so sin will always reside, sin will always remain in our hearts until Jesus takes us home to glory, until he returns to make all things new. But at the same time, we are called to live a life of continually forsaking our sin and repenting of our sin and pursuing holiness. And so we pray for strength to fight and overcome these besetting sins within us because we want Jesus in a powerful way to dwell in our hearts through faith. And so listen, maybe this morning, do you feel weak in your fight against sin? What, what, would you, what should your response be if you feel weak this morning? What's Paul telling you to do? Pray. Pray, earnestly pray that according to the immeasurable riches of God's glory and through the power of his Holy Spirit, that he would grant you strength in your fight against sin in your inner being so that sin would be dethroned and that Christ would reign and dwell within your hearts. And so just to end it, end our study, Paul would say in verse 14 that it's for this reason he bows his knee before the Father. And he does so for those, that that phrase, every family, it it can also, I think, even more helpfully be translated whole family. Um, But but basically that just, that that, um, is cluing us in on those who are a part, all of those who are part of God's family throughout all of millennia, both in heaven and on earth, both those who have passed and those who are living and those who bear the family name, child of the living God. For these, he bows his knee before the father. And so one final observation, and it's with Paul bowing his knees. If you've read through the gospel, you will see that the standard form of prayer within Judaism of that day, it wasn't to bow and kneel, it was to stand and pray. And so why does Paul buck the norms of the day and bow his knee? Because the bowing of the knee during that time, it was a, one, an outward expression of humility, but also a sign of submission to royalty. And so the reason Paul bows his knee is to confess his own inability and to confess, Heavenly Father, you are the king of my life and I give all that I am to you. God must do this work within us because we cannot do it ourselves. And so practically then, what does a life of experiencing the unending love of Christ and being filled with all the fullness of God. What, what, what practically does this look like? What should it look like in 
your life. And very quickly, three ways that you can kind of measure your life of whether this prayer is a reality within you or maybe it's a barometer of of pressing into this prayer all the more. Number one, a a life that is experiencing the love of Jesus and being filled with the fullness of God. It's a life that is growing in personal holiness, right? We've seen that in verse 17, uh, 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 verse 16 and 17, one that is uh, when the inner man is being strengthened, right? It's being strengthened to fight against sin. So practically, that means you are pursuing, you're growing in greater Christ-likeness and you are growing in your fight against sin. Secondly, it's a growing and unreserved obedience, right? This work of of Jesus within you, of, of producing his love within you, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so our love for Jesus is demonstrated, is expressed through obedience. And then finally, practically, what does this look like? It means that we are growing in our unqualified sacrifice. When your heart is full with love of Jesus, or as Paul would say elsewhere in Second Corinthians 5, when we are controlled by the love of Jesus, then his love, it frees us up to give up anything at whatever cost in service to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so with this, I think about family members of mine who who are raising two young children in a place that has absolutely no worldly appeal to it. Uh, it, we, we visited there one time and, and on the, on the, from a world's perspective, there's no reason why anybody would ever want to move to this place. There's, there's no worldly appeal to it. And they're living in a place with heightened health risks. So why would people sell their possessions, leave family, go around the world to difficult and dangerous places to share the love of Jesus with those who have never heard the gospel? Or why, why would people living here in America, why would people live below their means here so that they could give generously and support the advance of God's kingdom here in Broken Arrow and throughout the ends of the world? Or why would people give up their time to serve their church in their community? Why would you give up some Netflix time to serve others, right? What, what motivates and compels people to live like this? Listen, it's only because a greater love has eclipsed their hearts. The love of Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you in closing, has his love eclipsed your heart such that you are growing in personal holiness, that you are growing in unreserved obedience, and that you are growing in unqualified sacrifice? I pray it's so. And I pray that we would devote ourselves to this prayer, which then leads to, I have one application for you this morning. And that's what I'm calling the 314 challenge. 314, if you're writing, if you're, uh, writing notes, write down 314 challenge. And an easy way to remember that, what, what verse uh, does this prayer begin with? Verse 14 in chapter 3. So the 314 challenge. I want to encourage us as a church together that for the next 14 days, for the next two weeks, that we would pray through this prayer like Daniel did three times a day. He didn't pray this prayer, but he prayed three times a day. And so that we would pray this prayer three times a day for the next 14 days. Now, listen, you don't have to do it uh, verbatim, remote, but, but that, that you're praying the spirit of this prayer for the next 14 days. And I'm convinced, church, 
that if we sincerely are praying this, if we're devoting our lives to this prayer, to pray and to ask for God to work within us, that we would experience the breadth, length, height, and depth of his love for us, then church, I think revival could take place within our church. God could do an amazing work within us. And, and it could set the trajectory for the next season of ministry for our church. So I want to encourage you, if you are able to devote yourselves and, and to give yourselves and to commit yourselves to this 314 challenge, to pray through this prayer, Ephesians 314 through 19, three times a day for the next 14 days. And so during our time of response, Mike, you will go ahead and come up and during the, our time of response, what we're going to do uh, instead of uh, we are going to have a song, uh, but before the song, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray this prayer. And so I want to encourage you, if if you want to, if you're physically able uh, to bow your knees uh, it, it, uh, at wherever you are seated, if you're not able or if you don't, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's fine. I would just encourage you to bow your heart, uh, to bow your heart in humility before the Lord. And so I want you to take maybe a minute or a minute and a half, look at your Bibles and pray through this passage. Pray it to the Lord and ask him to reveal whatever is keeping you from experiencing the fullness of Jesus's love and the fullness of his presence. And then afterward, I will pray and then uh, we will sing a time of response. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.